salmon pot, raw food, rice, poultry, eggs, pork, and some freshwater fish from the nearby villages. While the surrounding woods and forests provided us with ample roots, shoots, and leafy vegetables. Mushrooms were plentiful, and luckily the shans were skillful at finding and identifying the edible ones. Our food was cooked in saucepans placed on three-leg metal rings or two parallel metal bars supported by rocks. Although the meals were not what we had been used to, they were tasty enough to satisfy our huge appetites, increased by fresh air and exercise. There were no shortage of logs, and there was usually a fire burning to cook the food or heat water. Sometimes the quiet of the forest would be disturbed by the sound of an approaching aircraft, and then the fire was quickly extinguished. Most often, however, in the forest it was very peaceful. There was no mechanical sounds to disturb the quiet and. One could hear the different and distant whistle of birds among the green leaves. One day after lunch, we were sitting outside the cave when, to our amazement, we saw a huge monkey scrambling to sit on the hill just above us. He was followed by three or four little ones jumping from tree to tree. When they had enough of play, they came and sat next to the leader. Gradually, the others followed until there was a group of fifteen to twenty. They stared inquisitively at us and we at them for some time until they decided to leave. This became a daily occurrence. Sometimes they stayed briefly, and other times they would stay for hours, sunning themselves, mothers nursing their babies, breastfeeding, or grooming them. In the evenings, we would sit around a fire, eating roasted potatoes and chestnuts. And while eating, we would watch the sun sink behind the hills, painting the blue sky with wonderful colors of purple and red. Flocks of birds would be flying home to roost, and we would listen to their songs. The nightingales, the doves, the cuckoos, and the pigeons. All singing their own tune and together producing sweet melodies that echoed through the trees beyond the cave. The world seemed so free from trouble and care, totally different from the reality of our situation. At night, I would often lie awake for hours, and sometimes it was a bit scary, because it was so quiet that it was possible to hear everything that stirred. Even the humming of mosquitoes. Now and again, the loud and clear hooting of an owl, or the howling of wolves, would pierce through the silence of the night. Each morning, we rose with the sun to wander and climb the forested hills surrounding the cave. We discovered numerous species of wild flowers and orchids. The orchids were the most interesting, very beautiful and delicate. We watched brightly coloured birds so still in the treetops that they looked like flowers in bloom. We would have liked to wander further into the forest, but we thought our long absence from the cave might add to Mother's many worries. We knew that Mother was very concerned for Father and Uncle Chao Meng, although she had tried to show exterior calm and be strong for us. 
After we had left Luxalt, the soldier had questioned father. Naturally, he had to lie about our whereabouts and had said that we had travelled to a neighbouring village to a festival. Boti and uncle had been subjected to house arrest from that time. Mother's anxieties increased when she heard that the Japanese soldiers had captured two of father's cousins and were refusing to give any news about them. During our first week in the cave, mother and father had managed to communicate almost daily through a secret messenger who had carried letters hidden in a straw hat. A man to whom my parents had once given a home when he was a young boy had, in spite of realizing that his life might be in danger, volunteered to be father's regular messenger. One day he did not arrive and mother and Sao Saimya must have feared the worst. After several days, they heard that someone in the nearby village that father had apparently discovered that the Japanese suspected the messenger and had questioned him. Father dare not ask his being followed to a hideout and decided to send no more messages. There was no way of knowing what the Japanese had done to father, Uncle Zhao Meng, as a result of their suspicion, and as the days dragged on with no news, even we children became infected by the anxiety. I began to imagine all sorts of things happening to them. Then suddenly, early one evening, as we were wandering near the cave, waiting for dinner, we saw three pheasants in the distance walking towards us. I called to mother who was inside the cave. Mother, come quickly. She was out in a second. We all clung together, our eyes focused on the three men, until Desmond, with the instinctive intuition of a ten-year-old, suddenly shouted, Father! and ran towards them. It was indeed father and uncle Chao Meng, but we still could not recognize the third man as we all ran to greet them. It turned out to be Kamai-san, one of the managers from the Japanese firm. After the initial greetings, Kamai-san told mother that he was at peace with himself now that he had brought father and uncle to be reunited with the family. What about you, Kamai-san? What's going to happen to you? She asked with concern in her voice. Kamai-san evaded the questions. But there were tears in his eyes as he told father that he should get his family to Laika as soon as possible. Father acknowledged the warning and thanked Kamai-san for what he had already done and for being a good friend. It was father's hope that they might meet again in better times. At this point, the reality imposed itself on Audrey and me. The Japanese were the enemy. The Japanese soldiers some of whom had lived peacefully in the main alongside us, where now the enemy and Kamai-san was one of the same race. However, he had been our teacher and friend and we had felt sad as we waved goodbye. Fifty years on, I am still conscious of the debt my family owed to people like Kamai-san and Liyama-san, who give us the original warning 
and I can see quite clearly Kamai-san as he disappeared among the trees. He was walking to a very uncertain future. He might never have seen his own wife and children again, and most probably paid for his loyalty with his life. There was no mortar roads between the cave and Laika, and the heavy cumbersome bullock carts would be slower than walking, so father had to find an alternative form of transport. The answer he decided was horseback. He dispatched some men to nearby villages to acquire some, and we settled down to wait. The following day, however, as we gathered for lunch as a family again, Ahmad Singh, one of father's ministers, suddenly appeared. The Japanese soldiers knew about the cave and were on their way. There was no time to wait for the horses. We were divided into two groups. Our family, Ahmad Singh and five men, led by father, and the other relatives and servants, led by uncle. No sooner had we climbed clear of the cave than we heard gunshots. Firing was non-stop, and we assumed that the Japanese were firing at our men. We quickened our pace and tried to leave the gunshots and mortar behind. It was nearly dark before the sounds faded, but Father and Ahmed Singh were still not prepared to stop. Although we were visibly exhausted and desperate for rest, they continued to push us on. My two brothers and Jean were being carried. Mother, out of breath and very tired, declared she could go no further. Ahmed Singh, who was also our parents' godson, carried her. When it got too dark, the men chopped down and lit bamboo poles to light up the tracks overgrown with brambles and bushes. At times, these had to be cut down before we could walk through. Exhaustion began to take its toll on the remaining walkers. Some of us were limping and others trailing behind. My mind and body were equally numb and my throat was dry. Finally, I could contain myself no longer and cried out, Please, Father, can we rest for just a few minutes? And Father relented. It was heavenly just to rest our aching feet and exhausted bodies but it was not for long. Soon father shouted, Get up, we got to go on. I pulled myself up and walked, but kept wondering how much further. My feet were moving automatically, my heart beating fast, and my stomach was hungry for food. We dragged ourselves along, hoping that we would soon reach the village where we could lie down for the night. Finally, we arrived at the village, Wanyang. This was where father had planned for us to spend the night. It was not to be. No sooner had we arrived than we heard gunshots again. The Japanese soldiers were still on our heels. With our strength ebbing, we pushed our bodies on until we came to another village, Namwa, or Sweet Water, noted for its pleasant-tasting water. We were not bothered about what the water tasted like. We were so thirsty that we drank mugs of it and would have done so whatever the taste. At long last, we had some food too, and with the kindness of the village folks, beds for the night. Audrey, Jean and I slept next to each other, and just as we were falling off to sleep, Audrey sat up 
and scratch her body. She had been bitten by fleas and was covered in red spots. The fleas were obviously in the beddings. We had no choice but to continue to use the blankets and we were so tired that the thought of fleas did not keep us awake for long. In the morning, we were relieved to wake up and find that the horses had arrived. None of us other than our parents had had the experience of travelling on the horseback, but we did not find it very difficult to control the horses. With the men servants walking alongside to guide us, we soon became confident. Round about 3am, we arrived at the village called Nadaik, or Quiet Field, on the edge of the Sobor of Laika district. At the entrance to the village, a group of voluntary Shan soldiers patrolled the area. Father introduced us and explained the circumstances of our somewhat unceremonious arrival. Would they direct us to the home of the village headman? The soldiers responded loudly and rudely, refusing us access and pointing guns at us. We were all shocked by their manner as much as frightened at their guns. It seems impossible that any Shan could treat a Sobois and his family so disrespectfully. Obviously, the power of the gun had gone to their heads and affected their judgment. They could not differentiate between friend and foe. Our parents looked defeated. They were too tired to argue or to try to insist on the village headman being called. Moving us a little away from the village to the bank of a stream, father's men tether the horses and father encouraged us to settle on the grass. We had no way of knowing what the next day would bring and possibly our parents did not get much sleep. But we children curled up and were soon fast asleep. I have no recollection of whether we had any rugs to sleep on or blankets to cover our bodies. When I woke up the next morning, my limbs felt stiff, every bone in my body was aching and my stomach was rumbling with hunger. The soldiers were still at the village entrance and our position still seemed hopeless. However, like the rest of my family, I needed to relieve myself and so we had to muster through enthusiasm to find private places before we could even think what to do next. We had reassembled when we heard a commotion near the soldiers' checkpoint. Walking towards us with a small entourage was a figure whom we recognised as the Sobwar of Laika. He told us that he had also been evacuated from the town to the village after he had been contacted by the American 101 Battalion. The American army had marched from the Chinese Shan border into the northern Shan state. At Maimyo, the Americans were joined by a column of Karen soldiers and together they defeated the Japanese. They then advanced into the southern Shan state and with the Sobwa's permission and help, set up their base camp here in Nadai village. Never had anyone been greeted more rapturously. After days of disappointment and despair, this was our first glimmer of hope. 
Following a brief exchange, the Sobwa leaders, our servants and horses passed the soldiers, no longer aggressive or waving their guns, to a place in the village where he was camped. We were given breakfast and lunch and somewhere to rest. One of the servants was dispatched to the house of the village headman, where it was arranged that we should stay. The headman and his family made us very welcome. They fed us wholesome food and gave us a comfortable place to sleep. During the five days that we were there, our body and spirits started to recover from the anxiety and deprivation of the previous three weeks. At the invitation of the American Karen officers, we moved to a wooden house in the vicinity of the 101 base camp. The officers treated us with friendliness and showered us with canned corned beef, tomatoes, cheese and chocolates. The latter delighted us immensely. They came to visit us daily and paid so much attention to us that Mother became a bit wary of their intentions. We were instructed that while we must be polite, we must not be too friendly or encourage them in any way. The officer were just being sociable and friendly. However, mother was adamant she must protect us. Like mothers of teenage girls the world over, she was anxious for us and she knew the ways of the world better than we did. After we had been in the camp for a week, we were told that we were to be airlifted to Bumor, where the British government had its temporary base. As it was a small runaway at the 101 base camp, only very small planes could land. This meant we would have to fly in groups. Having experienced such traumatic times together recently, the family was reluctant to be separated for even a short period. But we were told that there was no other quick transport. There was no alternative. We had to fly separately. My parents had their own reasons when they decided that Desmond, Audrey and I would fly first with father and mother, Jean and Kenrick would follow as soon as there were flights available. The tumble-down shack to which we were taken when we landed at Bamor did not look at all promising, but we were assured that this was temporary and we were cheered when we discovered that the hut was already occupied by the Sobwar of Maimpun and his children. Sao Suhom was a former school friend of Desmond, and they would enjoy each other's company. The daughter was much younger than I, but no doubt I could help to look after her, and this would prove to be a distraction. Father was obviously pleased at the prospect of conversation with an adult, with whom he could chew over the serious business of war and politics. He and mother did talk and shared their thoughts, but father had no doubt been constrained. He was aware of mother's concern and that she was showing obvious signs of increasing stress. Anxious to protect her as much as possible, father would not have felt able to give vent freely to his own worries about the current situation and what would happen in the future. ก็ดมาพลาลงเฮาสั่งสอนไว้เมืองคนในพ่อเคยกัดเย็นเจอเฮาลดกลางพี
กิเลสาลงลับสิกรรมมาทำ